Hey there, this is Pastor Corey, and welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. After you're done listening, I invite you to connect with us at branchlife.church to make sure you're up to date with everything going on at Branch Life. Want to share what you heard today? Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this video with someone you want to encourage. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that this presentation helps you connect with Christ and challenges you to reach those around you with the good news of Jesus. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors at Branch Life, and you're joining us for week three of a series that we're calling Prove It. And the question that we're asking throughout this series is, was Jesus actually who he claimed to be? So a couple weeks ago, Pastor Josh started us off and he looked at the prophecies that are associated with Jesus, looking at the Old Testament, looking at the New Testament and how they are meshed together in helping us understand who the person of Jesus actually was. Then last week, Pastor Scott got the opportunity to share with us about the miracles Jesus did and asked the question of whether it's logical or reasonable for us to actually believe that Jesus did the miracles that the scriptures tell us that he did. This week, I'm going to cover the idea of whether Jesus was actually a real human person and whether he actually died. And then next week on Easter Sunday, Pastor Josh will be back with us sharing about the resurrection and asking the question of whether it's logical for us to believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And so we're excited to continue through this series with you this evening. You know, as we're thinking about this series and and I've been pondering what I'm going to share this week. Um, one of the things that's become very interesting to me is the time frame in which this series falls. So it's possible you're watching this the first time we've debuted it on a Sunday night, but it's also possible you've got this on a podcast a few weeks from now, or you found it maybe even a few years from now. And we're recording this from my living room. As you can see, you got a chance to see Pastor Scott's living room. Now you're seeing mine. Um, we're recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so As we think about this, and as I've thought about this as a pastor, one of the things that I go through sometimes as I'm preparing to speak is thinking about exactly how I'm going to convey this to the audience and meeting people in the situation that they find themselves in. So as I think through this, I might think about somebody who's going through a very difficult time. And what happens as I think through that is I think, well, because of the situation we're in, everybody is going through a difficult time, right? Everybody's going through something we haven't gone through before, and that might be frustrating to us. But then we think about someone else, and I might think, oh, maybe someone's transitioning jobs or learning how to do their job differently, and that kind of seems to be the case for everybody, right? And, and what I've realized is that for most people, this situation has put us on an even playing field. Everyone's going through something that's different. Everyone's going through a difficult transition. Everyone's going through something that's frustrating. Everyone is going through something that they didn't expect to happen. And thinking about where I want to pick up talking about the story uh, this week, I want to focus on Palm Sunday. Today, April 5th, is actually Palm Sunday. And if you're not a regular church person, Palm Sunday means that we're thinking about the week before Jesus actually rose from the dead. So this is the beginning of the week where he would give his life for us. And Palm Sunday was huge for Jesus. Palm Sunday was exciting. Palm Sunday, he spent riding into Jerusalem to a parade-like atmosphere with people on either side of the streets chanting his name, calling him king, waving palm branches. And this had to be an amazing time for him. And it had to be an amazing time for his 12 disciples because 
They had followed him for years, and now they were getting the recognition maybe they had hoped to get from the very beginning. But then something changed. Just a few days later, Jesus would go through something that would be horrific. And in just a span of a few short days, things changed completely for Jesus and his followers. You know, I think back to what life was like just a couple weeks ago, and and I went to a sporting event in Philadelphia at one of the stadiums on one Saturday. I had tickets to another game the following Saturday, different team, but same stadium, and I was planning on going just a week later. What happened for me is I went to the first game, and then the next week, the game that I had tickets to didn't even happen. And so in the span of just a few days, we had life shift and life change. And as we enter into the story, we can understand that Jesus gets that. Jesus gets when your world turns upside down in just a few short days, and he understands what that's like. I want to fast forward in the story a little bit and go, to, from, go from Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday to Thursday evening. And so I want to pick up the story in Luke chapter 22. So if you want to grab your Bible, you can turn with me or turn on your phone and turn to the scriptures if you'd like. And so when we pick up this story, we're going to Thursday night. Like I said, this is right after the Last Supper. And again, if you're not someone who finds themselves in church very often, the Last Supper is what we celebrate as followers of Jesus when we do communion, right? We take the bread and the cup and we share that together as Jesus asked us to do. But even if you haven't been a part of that, you've probably seen the painting, right? Where everybody's seated on one side of the table and everybody's there. It was Jesus and his disciples. And this was a very special time for them. But just after that dinner, uh, Jesus goes with some of his disciples and he goes to pray. And in Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 39. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I want to pause here, and and I just want to ask a question, because I think it's interesting sometimes the way that we view Jesus. If you've grown up in church, you might be tempted to skew your understanding of Jesus to completely the God side of him. And what do I mean by that? Well, I asked the question in my mind as I thought about it. Do we think of Jesus as a human or do we think about him as a superhero? Um, I grabbed something since I'm here in my house to show you. My son, Owen, is six years old and he loves Legos and Spider-Man is one of his favorite superheroes. And so he loves getting Legos, putting them together. Um, He'll spend hours doing that. And he loves superheroes and Spider-Man is his favorite. So I grabbed one of his uh, Legos that he put together all by himself um, of Spider-Man here. And it just, as I think through this and I think through superheroes and how we understand Jesus, when we've grown up in church, it's easy for us to think about his God side so much. We think about him being able to rise from the dead. We think about the miracles that he was able to do. We think about all of those things, but sometimes it's difficult for us to remember, and maybe sometimes we forget that Jesus was fully human. And many historians would agree that Jesus was a real human being. He was somebody who walked the the earth 2,000 years ago. There was a physical person named Jesus. Whether they believe he did all the miracles or not, they believe that he was a person because it wouldn't be very logical for Christianity to have the start it 
has and has become based on a mythical person. It just doesn't make sense. And so most people believe that. And as we look at Jesus, we can understand that he was a human being with feelings and fears and anxieties. And when we look at these first verses that I read from chapter 22 of Luke, we see that he goes to the garden to pray. He takes the disciples with him, but he goes a little further himself. And maybe they were still able to hear him. And he's crying out to God. And and verse 42 is very, very interesting. Verse 42 says that he, as he's praying to God, says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What's he saying? Well, ultimately, he's saying, I don't want to die. If there's another way for this to happen, if, if, if there's any other way for us to make this work, let's do that instead because I'm not excited about what's going and Jesus is feeling the weight of this. And then if we keep going in verse 43, it says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, we said this is from Luke, right? And one of the interesting things about Luke is he's a doctor. And we don't have any evidence that Luke was actually in the garden here with the disciples. But what we know is that Luke knew the disciples very well. And so likely he had a conversation with them after this happened or when he was writing his gospel. And he said, what was it like? And and one of the things that the disciples would have told him is that when Jesus came back to them after praying, he would have been sweating and in his sweat, they would have been able to see blood. Now, Luke as a doctor writes that down because he thinks it's a very important piece to the puzzle, but he also is probably fascinated by it because he wouldn't have understood what was going on. But one of the great things and one of the amazing things about scripture is that it gives insight from the time frame that we now understand in a better way later. And so what we know today, based on our medical studies, about what Jesus was going through is he was going through something called hematidrosis. You can try and say that at home, right? Hematidrosis. And what that means at a very base level is he was going through such agony. You know, Luke says agony. He was under such anxiety that what happens when, when hematidrosis is something you're going through is that you're, you're under so much stress that the capillaries in your sweat glands, they break. And they bleed and they come out of your pores looking like you're sweating blood. What was happening to Jesus in this story is that his physical body was feeling the full weight of his godly objective. And he knew that he was going to, what he was going to have to go through in the next 24 hours. And it was already taking a physical toll on his body. And he was going through something that was very very heavy. Let me pause for just a second and say, sometimes when we talk about anxiety, especially in Christian circles, we'll recite things like we should put all our anxiety and all our cares on God. And that can be easy to say and even maybe easy to hear. But I bet you've gone through some real anxiety recently. And for those of us who struggle with anxiety on a regular basis anyway, this has put a magnifying glass on it. Let me just say that Jesus understands fully what it means to be overcome by anxiety. And we can rest in knowing that he gets us when we come to him in our anxiety and lay it before him. He felt it just as we felt it. So what we see about Jesus is we see his humanness here. Not so much a superhero, not so much all-powerful, even though he was, 
Even though he was still completely God, his humanness is coming out. We can see that in him. I want to fast forward in this story a little bit. From this point, uh, Jesus actually goes through a bit of a trial. He's given over and captured. Um, Judas betrays him. And he goes to this sort of trial, and they're trying to figure out what are they going to do with Jesus. And he comes before this guy named Pilate. And if you go with me to John chapter 19, John chapter 19 gives us the whole account of the crucifixion. We're not going to read the whole thing today, but I would challenge you to do that this week in thinking about next week um, and the resurrection story that Pastor Josh will, will share with us. But I just want to start in the beginning of chapter 19, and we'll, we'll jump to the end a little bit later. So in John chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now let's go back to verse 1 just a second. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This is, this is a very specific type of punishment. It's a very specific type of torture. And maybe you've heard a little bit about this. Let me just tell you in case you don't know much about it. They would take a leather whip that had multiple strands on it. It would have bone and rocks and lead tied to it. And what would happen when they swung this at somebody is it would kind of be like cat claws. The, the bone would actually grab and just hold onto the flesh. And then they would rip it away. And what would happen is the, the flesh would then rip away with the bone that had been stuck into the flesh of the person that they were um, punishing. And so they would do this about 39 times, anywhere from the tops of the shoulders to the backs of your knees. And so 39 times just grabbing and ripping and grabbing and ripping. And what would happen is the chunks of flesh would just go away and you'd start to maybe be able to see some bone and maybe even some organs in there. And what would happen with Jesus's body is he would start to bleed and his body would go into shock from the pain and his heart would start to try and pump blood to the places that no longer had blood because they no longer had flesh, but then there would be nowhere for that blood to go. So it would come, it would just flow out and he would continue to bleed and lose fluids. And, and his body would just, it was trying to catch up to the trauma that he was going through, but it was kind of like trying to drive your car as fast as you can running on fumes. Eventually you're going to sputter out and he's feeling the weight of all this. And then after that, they put a robe on him and they punch him and beat him some more. They put a crown of thorns on him. From here, they continue down this road of crucifixion and they give him a beam that he has to carry. Now, when we think about carrying a cross, it probably wasn't the full cross. It was probably just the cross beam that his hands would eventually be nailed into. And they they give it to him. It probably weighs 40 or 50 pounds. And it's not a nice finished sanded piece of wood. This is a piece of a plank that is from 2,000 years ago with splinters and probably had other people already crucified on it. They hand it to him and they tell him to carry it up a hill to the place he's going to be crucified. As he's carrying it up the hill, he collapses. They find someone else to grab it for him. They carry it the rest of the way up the hill. When they get to the top of the hill, they nail the cross beam to the vertical beam and they make the cross. They lay him down on it and they take railroad spikes, essentially is what the nails were. And they would put it right here into their arm because then the bones in your arm where they came together, you wouldn't be able to rip your arm off the cross. It would hold you there. And by the way, there's nerve endings in there. So it would have been extremely painful. So as Jesus is nailed down with railroad spikes, he's got one in each arm. He's got one or two in his feet. And as they raise him up, the cross would get ready to fall 
into the hole which would hold it up. Just like if you ever put in a fence, right? You dig down a few feet, you put the fence post in to make sure that fence post isn't going to come out. The cross fell down three or four feet to make sure the cross wasn't going to fall over. So as Jesus is strung out like this and he falls in, it's possible even his shoulders would be pulled from their sockets. And that's where he would spend the last hours of his life. So go back to the question of whether Jesus was actually killed. And I don't know many people, including myself, who would be able to survive exactly what Jesus has gone through already to this point in our story. But we get even more evidence. So what ends up happening uh, in the rest of chapter 19 is that we'll come to a place where John, who's writing this gospel, actually has a conversation with Jesus face to face. And Jesus' mother is there as well. We're going to skip to verse 28. So if we go to 28, this is right after that conversation with Jesus. So we know that the writer of this gospel, John, one of Jesus' best friends, is there face to face with him as he's dying and watching him die. He's watched this whole thing take place. And verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So again, we've got John, one of Jesus' best friends, standing here watching him die face to face. And he says, I watched Jesus take his last breath. And we get some more evidence here in verse 31. So since it was the end, it was the day of preparation. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Let me pause here and help us understand what's happening. So this is Friday. Saturday for the Jews is Sabbath day. So they come to Pilate. They want this whole thing. They want the crucifixion. They want the bodies buried. They want this done by the Sabbath day. So as the day is going on Friday, they say, can we make sure these guys are done? Can we expedite the process here? Jesus has a person on either side of him also being crucified. So what they would do is they would come in order to make you die a little quicker uh, through this process. They would break your legs. And the reason they would do that is because if you were stretched out like this, you can even try it in your living room, you stretch your arms out like this and you try and take a full breath. The pressure that's here across your chest because your arms are stuck at your sides, it makes it more difficult to breathe. So what they would do is they would push up. And once you kind of get above the tension of your arms being stuck out like this, it's a little bit easier to breathe. So they would try and breathe that way. And every time they took a breath, they would need to pull up a little bit and come back down and pull up a little bit and come back down. So if they break your legs, you can't push yourself up. You can't get another breath. You're going to suffocate. But what we hear from this story is that when the Roman soldiers, whose job it was to make sure that Jesus was dead, when they get to him and they see him, they confirm what John has already told us. He's actually dead. Now, it's easy to look at these two people and say, well, could John have been wrong about Jesus being dead? Maybe. Could the soldiers who were um, in charge of killing Jesus, could they have been wrong? Maybe. But think about it this way. I don't know how many people you've seen after they passed away. Hopefully not too many. The only places I've seen people after they pass away has been the hospital or at a funeral. Here's what I know. 
When you know the person that passed away, you can always tell that their life has left their body. You know that that's true. And so for someone like John and Jesus' mother to be present and to see him die and to say, yes, he was dead, and then to have that confirmation from the Roman soldiers, it's logical for us to believe and to assume that this is the correct account of what happened and that Jesus did actually die. Now, there's other, a couple of other um, theories that kind of mess with this idea. Was Jesus, did Jesus actually die? Was there any other way that he could have seemed like he was dead and then the, the, um, the grave was empty, so it seems like he rose from dead? We're going to talk about some of those theories on Monday night. So we always do a Facebook Live. If you'd like to join us, 9 o'clock on Monday night, that's what we're going to talk about. Is, are these other theories that people might have about really what happened to Jesus, and we'll talk about those a little bit more. So we invite you to join us uh, for those conversations. But going off of what we've established now, if we assume that Jesus was actually dead, the next logical question for us is, what does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus actually did die? Why does it matter that he actually did give up his life for us? And the answer to that is simple. The answer is that Jesus needed to give us hope in a situation where we had none. You see, we didn't have the ability to pay for our own sins. So Jesus had to give that payment for us. And when he did that, there was a next step that needed to happen, right? There's the resurrection, which Pastor Josh is going to talk about next week. But in order for the resurrection to happen, there had to be a sacrifice that was made. And Jesus was willing to give that sacrifice so that we could have that hope. Here's what I know about hope. Hope means more when you recognize the amount of despair there was to begin with, right? And Jesus was willing to embrace that despair, embrace the fact that we needed our relationship with God to be restored. He was willing to embrace that, even to the point of suffering, everything we've just talked about, just so that he could restore us to a right relationship with God. You know, one of the things that's been most uh, frustrating or difficult, however you want to say it, through this whole quarantine, social distancing thing for me personally has been the lack of sports. Now, for some people, you're going, uh, it doesn't matter. I could do without sports. But for some of you, know, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Uh, this has already canceled the NCAA basketball tournament. So that's completely done. Every other NCAA spring championship tournament has been canceled. Opening day for baseball has been pushed back. That has already come and gone from when it was scheduled. And so we're waiting for that to start. The NBA and the NHL have all had to cancel their season so far. And maybe they'll finish it this summer. We're not sure. It's just been this absence of sports. I love watching sports. And one of the reasons I love watching it is because sometimes there's those teams who you just don't think are going to win. And they get a major upset, right? And those things are so cool because. You, you realize how much of a difference there are between the two teams and, and how one team should just demolish the other and somehow this underdog team finds a way to get it done. And it's always so cool because you look at the distance between the two teams and their skill level or their talent or their coaching and there's just no way, but somehow it happens. And what makes those stories so special is the fact that a team comes together and what brings them together is not just their hope, but their belief. See, for us, what we have to do is we have to move from this hope that Jesus gives us, and we have to confirm that with the belief because of what we know he accomplished on the cross. 
you know, you look at a team that maybe upset the other, right? And you have a conversation. You could go and interview them before the game. And let's say this team that's a lowly college is going to go play against one of the top-ranked schools. And if you went to them and you had a conversation with them and you said, do you believe you can win? And they went, I hope so. In the back of your mind, you'd say, you have no chance, right? Because they don't believe it. But every time you hear a story of a team that's an underdog and they beat the top dog, there's always a story about somebody in that locker room, whether it's a coach or the captain or another player on the team, and they had this belief. They believed they could do it. And when they believed they could do it, they convinced somebody else they believed and that would believe it. And then they convinced somebody else to believe it. And then they convinced somebody else to believe it. And all of a sudden, you've got a team full of people who believed they could do it. And when they believed they can do it, it wasn't just hope anymore. It was belief. Now it became a reality for them. What I want us to do and what my challenge is for us is to take that hope that Jesus gave us by dying on the cross, but to turn it into a belief that we are willing to live out every day. See, what hope does is hope is a very positive thing. And the Bible talks a lot about hope, but the one problem with hope is it allows for the worst to still happen, right? And when you're only dealing with hope, I think what happens sometimes is you become a hope hoarder. Now, what does that mean? Well, you start to gather the things that you believe you need to give yourself hope that might come through for you to be able to make this happen. Um, Let me tell you a quick story. After college, I worked for the company 1-800-GOT-JUNK, okay? I'll be honest with you. I worked there for a total of four weeks. I worked there for two weeks. I gave my two weeks notice, and I got out of there two weeks later. Now, here's a big reason why. Um, If you've ever seen the show Hoarders on TV, I will tell you 100% that is true. That is not... um, a TV series where they're just like, they buy a house and they load it with stuff and they fake it. These are real places. And I'll never forget my very first day working for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. It was pouring rain. And we went to this house. They sent us to a hoarder house. The only way to stay dry in this house, it was in such bad shape, was to stand in a doorway. Because that meant that that wall was actually structurally sound and hopefully what was above it was also structurally sound. And so the only way to stay dry was to stand in that doorway because that would give you a little bit of structure to be able to keep the rain away from you. And we spent all day cleaning out this house. They paid for seven trucks to come and clean out this house. We were ripping out carpet. We were taking wet bags of newspaper. We were just unloading everything. And it cost, back then, to load one truck, it cost $2,000. So this family spent $14,000 cleaning out their house. We found out a week later that it was condemned and it needed to be torn down. Now, what was the problem there? I'm not putting down anyone who struggles with this. Uh, You would know if you came here to my house and you went to my basement, I keep too much stuff, okay? But here's the problem, right? When all we're dealing with is hope, we keep things and we hoard things, hoping that they're going to help us, hoping that they're going to give us what we need. The problem is when we only hope in the things that we can supply and only hope in the things that we can gather, the rest of the things that are around us are falling apart because we can't keep up with it. We can't sustain what we've hoarded. Here's what we have to do. We have to not find our hope in who who we are finding our hope in who Jesus is and moving that to belief, being willing to believe that we have what's best coming still. And it's not here now, but it's coming, right? Because if we are followers of Jesus, what we truly believe 
is that we're going to see that come true. No matter what happens here on earth, no matter what terrible thing we go through here on earth, we know that what's best is coming next. So we live in light of that. Let me give you one last example. This week I saw a video uh, by John Krasinski. John Krasinski is the guy who played Jim from The Office, and The Office had their 15th anniversary uh, this past week, and uh, he decided that he wanted to create a new show that was only positive news, and he asked for people to send him stuff. And here's what I saw. I saw people leaving toilet paper and hand sanitizer out on their front door for their delivery guys to take if they needed it. You saw a story about a teenage girl who was going through cancer, and when she came home from her last chemo treatment, she was welcomed by her entire street, standing out and cheering for her as she came home. Now, here's what I know, right? If people, I don't know if John Krasinski is a Christian. I have no idea. But if people who don't know Jesus can supply that kind of belief to other people that things are going to be okay, how much more should followers of Jesus be willing to share with people how things are going to be okay? Because even if things don't go well here, what we have the ability to do is hand them belief in something that's bigger than ourselves, that's not based on what we can do, And that no matter what happens here on earth, we have the best still to come. So I think there's a couple of people that I'm talking to as I have this conversation, right? There's those of us who have uh, been church people. Maybe we have already decided to follow Jesus, right? And that's how we would describe ourselves. We've already decided to believe in Jesus. And the question for us is, how are we going to share that belief with somebody? How are we going to be the person who believes ourselves and then hands that belief to someone else. And there's another group of people that maybe you haven't decided to follow Jesus yet. And I would challenge you to just investigate who Jesus was and what he did. And ask the question, was Jesus who he said he was? What would it take for you to move from hope to belief in who Jesus is? Read the scriptures. Come back next week for Pastor Josh's wrap up to this series. But ask yourself that question. You owe it to yourself to find the answer for you. We have a way for you to respond to this week's message. Um, And if you go to branchlife.church, you'll find our response card. And we want everyone to fill that out. We want to hear from you, especially since we can't be all together. We want to be able to connect well this week. And so my challenge for you, and the question I want you to answer, is how can you be someone who is clearly a person of belief that can give that belief to somebody else this week. You see, if we are followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to hand that belief to somebody else. What we do here on planet Earth might move somebody to believe in who Jesus is. Somebody on your street might be waiting for someone, hoping that someone's going to help them with whatever they need. And when you show up and help them, they might believe. Somebody at your school or your work is hoping that someone's going to speak to them or help them with what they need or reach out to them. And if you do, you step into that hope, you might cause them to believe. Not just to believe that things are going to be okay, but to believe in something bigger than themselves and to believe that the best is yet to come because then their faith is then found in who Jesus is. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the ability to still connect 
with each other um, online to be able to gather together this way. We ask that we would recognize this week and maybe spend some time thinking about the sacrifice that you made for us and the life that you gave in order to give us hope. We pray, if, especially if we're followers of Jesus, that we would be people who aren't just hopeful for something that we've established or that we've gathered, but that we are believing in what you've done for us and that we would find ways to share that belief with somebody else for them to understand that the best is yet to come, to not be focused on the struggles that happen in this world, but to be completely sure of what they believe is coming after they die. And Lord, we pray for the people that are giving their time in the health field to be able to help those who are affected by this. We pray for health for them. We pray for health for many people that are struggling, people that have been already diagnosed, people that might be exposed. We ask that you would give them health and protect them this week. We thank you again for your sacrifice for us and the resurrection that gives us eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.